in learning, they did those studies where they would give children a jar and for every right answer, they got a marble that they could put in the jar to keep. Or in the other condition, they gave them a jar full of marbles and for every wrong answer, they took one away. Well, the kids learned faster <laughs> when they were losing the marbles than they were gaining. It's the same contingency, you know, a marble for a right answer. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. While we spoke to Professor Roy Baumeister about the what and why of willpower in episode one, here in episode two, I talked to Roy about overcoming the power of bad, negativity bias, and negative impact on well-being. While we live better today than ever before in history, we are full of more anxiety and worry than ever. In response to the power of bad, Roy suggests that we need to look for the positive things in life. He talks about living a low-bad diet, not trying to be perfect, and focusing instead on being good enough to focus on the big picture. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. Can I change tack a little bit, Roy, and ask you about your most recent book, The Power of Bad. And I read this book and I'd highly recommend it to all of our listeners. And I will do a review of this book later on in a later podcast. But, you know, you wrote it with with John Tierney. And it's really about, I suppose, about how, you know, this negativity bias, how negative emotion can really impact our well-being. And, you know, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. And for John, the paradox was we live better today than just about ever in history. We have so many comforts and we're safe. And just the fact that here in the U.S. you can live in a city and not worry about soldiers coming to your town to burn it down and steal all your food. That's such a blessing. And yet people are full of anxiety and worry and they think the future is going downhill. So why why so much negativity? He says, if you look at the bestseller books over the generations, uh, over the decades, they often focus on there's going to be this disaster. There's going to be that disaster. Predicting a miserable future seems to seems to sell. He was a journalist, Tierney, and uh, he said, why does everything have to be a crisis? Why yes. does bad news get such precedence? And so we came to realize that this is just one of the, the basic properties of the mind, that it reacts to bad things more strongly than good things. And there are countless studies that are reviewed when I first wrote a scientific paper on this. There are countless studies equating things and, and showing, yes, the negative thing has more impact. You're more upset about losing $50 than you're happy about gaining $50. Mm-hmm. Or in learning, they did those studies where they would give children a jar and for every right answer, they got a marble that they could put in the jar to keep. 
Or in the other condition, they gave him a jar full of marbles and for every wrong answer, they took one away. Well, the kids learned faster <laughs> when they were losing the marbles than they were gaining. It's the same contingency, you know, a marble for a right answer. But the negative has more power. People have more words for bad emotions. You know, one thing I noticed even in, in the psychological literature, the concept of trauma. Mm. Where there's a single bad event that has effects on you for months or years thereafter. But there's no opposite. There's no good event that you know, a single event can improve your well-being for years thereafter. I look at things like sex. I mean, one bad sex experience can really undermine someone's uh, sexual pleasure and response for a long time thereafter. But there's no good sexual experience that's so good that you're just happy for, <laughs> for years after. So when we set out on this, I said, well, this is kind of an interesting pattern. I see it here and here and here. Mm. Let's go look and find what the exceptions are, and then we'll know what causes this pattern. And we'll build a very interesting theory about it. Only we couldn't find exceptions. It seemed to be just true everywhere. So we were a little disappointed because it would make a more interesting theory to say bad is stronger than good under these conditions. Good is stronger than bad under those conditions. But I was compensated somewhat by the, the excitement of saying this is so universal a pattern. It must be one of the basic properties of the mind to overreact to bad things. And again, going back, avoiding danger, avoiding problems was probably much more important than finding good things. If, if missed out on some good experience, well, that's too bad, but no great loss. You may have another opportunity. If you fail to identify a deadly predator, however, that's, that's it. Mm. As we put it in the book, that life has to win every day. Death only has to win once. Yes, which so, is a great saying. Stand. And, you know, it's, I would understand uh, yeah. as a doctor, you know, how, how the amygdala, I call it, you know, the red button in, in, in the limbic emotional brain, how that's kind of like the, the center for, for reactivity. And, you know, we'll take happiness as an optional extra, as it were, but, but survival is the name of the game. And we're hardwired for fear and anxiety. And I suppose escaping, escaping the lion in the jungle type of idea. Yes. And the same in our interpersonal life, too, that mistaking someone as a friend who is actually going to be an enemy can really be costly to your well-being in, in multiple ways. So, yes, the, the, one of the places this had been noticed for our review was in forming impressions of people, that when you meet somebody new, if you find out something bad about that person, it has a lot more weight in terms of your total impression than in out something correspondingly good. Yes, and Marie, of course, is another example. Uh, if you tell a lie once and tell the truth once, though, that, that's not a wash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so single immoral action can define you. People we call liars don't lie all the time. Just lying sometimes is enough. And there are certain actions like committing murder that people say there's no amount of positive things that you can do to make up for murdering someone. What do you think of the phenomenon it's become much more prevalent in, in recent years through social media, Roy, where somebody, they say something inappropriate or they're perceived to have done something, you know, maybe in public life or political life or whatever. And people all pile on on social media and, you know, to preferably kind of chop the person's head off. What are your views on that? Yes, that's become an increasing pattern and it's, it's, very troubling. It's often used to uh, even restrict intellectual freedom. The, the people even dare to think thoughts that others think, oh, you shouldn't even consider that theory. So it shuts down intellectual progress. There's evidence that, that people who do a lot of that are sort of these, these narcissistic bullies they're trying to show off. Mm. If 
you say something and I say, oh, you shouldn't have said that. I pile on you and jump on you and criticize you. But it's also a way for me to signal to other people and say, see, I'm a good person. I know what's right. I know the rules. It's a nastier form of what one sees with, with children when they, they tease each other. And I, I did some research on teasing long ago. And what it struck me is teasing is a way of showing that I know the norms. You know, so a kid teases another child for, uh, oh, there must be a flood. Look, your pants are too short, you know, because kids grow and then their pants are too short. And, mm. Is there a flood? Whatever. Ha, ha, ha. But it shows I know the norms that you should wear pants that are the, go all the way down to your ankles. And you, maybe your parents aren't buying you new pants while you're growing. So it's a way of, of me showing off to attack someone else. And that's that's regrettable that that is spreading and becoming so common. It's much easier to organize a mob over a minor thing these days because of the online communities. And there are even some suggestions that it's only a few people who are doing these nasty things, but there are enough of them to, uh, mm. to really mess up someone's life. And even if 98% of the people disapprove of that kind of bullying, the 2% can round up enough to just make someone's life miserable. So people become more and more concerned about what they're posting and what they're saying and even what they're thinking. I've spent my life at universities and intellectual freedom to consider different ideas and to challenge and question things. This is one of the foundations. And yet that is drying up. More and more professors are reporting. They censor themselves. They don't dare talk about uh, certain topics. They worry that something they say might even be misinterpreted and lead to all this this kind of punishment. So... It's an unfortunate. Yeah. I was reading that research by Ed Diener looking at people's Twitter profiles that, you know, there was a very close correlation between the degree of negativity in terms of somebody's postings and comments and their risk of heart disease, that the, the risk of heart disease in the person that was posting and sharing negative comments, it was it was a closer correlation in terms of heart disease risk than the conventional risk factors like smoking or blood pressure or, or diabetes or cholesterol. I don't, I don't know that paper. I know Dean is a, he's a great man and a brilliant scientist. And I know he's not well right now, but I hope he's, he's better. But I hadn't right. seen this particular one, and yet I'm not surprised that living with this kind of negativity is probably not good for you and not good, good for your well, heart. Here in Ireland, a number of years ago, we, we banned passive smoking in workplaces. And, you know, because, you know, passive cigarette smoke is, is so bad for your health. But I sometimes say to people, you know, that, that needless negativity can, can be just as bad for you if you expose yourself to enough of it in terms of your <laughs> in terms of your well-being. So, right. yeah. you know. Yes, yes. We finished in the book on the, the power of bad, which is a, basically a very optimistic, positive book. You know, it that, is. What it means is life is better than you think it is because your mind uh, seizes on the negative. But we also say it's good to help it along. Uh, go out and look for some positive things. Yes. Uh, I subscribe to the uh, Glassbergen cartoon thing. So every day I get a cartoon and there's a great sense of humor and funny. Having Brilliant. something funny across my inbox in, in the morning, I kind of look forward to that. And then I have a smile. But it helps by starting the day reading the news, which is all full of <laughs> uh, things going to hell. And it's, uh, you talk in the book about, I thought it was a lovely line, the low bad diet. I thought that was a great line. I mean, what would you think would be, say, the top three ideas you give our listeners if they wanted to bring more of a sort of a low bad diet into their lives before they get a chance to read your book, that is? 
the low bad diet, we have several strong recommendations. First, don't try to be perfect. Mm. Perfectionism is associated with all sorts of even mental illnesses and anxieties and problems. Focus on being good enough. Mm, uh, I love that. Try to eliminate the most negative things. You don't have to be perfect. We, we had this with parents in, in the U.S. Uh, a lot of parents think, oh, I have to do everything perfectly and have the right things. Whereas some of the researchers saying, actually, if you're in the top 95% uh, <laughs> of parents, that's about as good as you need to do to get your kid a decent start in life, as long as you're not one of the really bad ones. Another thing on the low-bad diet, focus on the big picture. Sure, things go wrong, but how big a disaster is it? And you can recover and you can do better. So yes, life has wins and losses and, and so on. But when something bad happens, take your lesson, learn what you can, and then, then move forward. In terms of exposure to the media, the, understand the media have this this bias that they're looking for negative things and mm -hmm. crises and problems, and they're featuring those. And many of them are, are overblown. Now, here in the U.S., we've seen all sorts of predictions of uh, how society is going to collapse and so on, depending on whether this or that person is elected. And yet, it doesn't usually turn out that bad, and, and things seem actually to do pretty pretty fine. So... If you read something bad, you know, go and look for some positive messages, something mm. that's uh, positive as well. You spoke about a ratio of four to one in terms of positive to negative. Yes. We wanted, in applying this to your own life, it's tempting to think, well, I upset my spouse by doing something bad, so I should do something nice to make it up to him or her. We want to say, well, bad and good are not equal. Uh, it's better to have in your mind, I did something bad to upset him or her, so I should do four positive things. And that seems to be about where the, the break-even point or, or even uh, the positive point. One of the original findings was, was actually in studies of relationships where they had couples come into the laboratory and talk about things uh, and well, or reported on their lives and so on. The conclusion was that the marriages that succeed and flourish are happy. There are at least five positive things for every negative ones. Yes. And so having twice as many good as bad, well, that sounds like that should be pretty good, right? If, if good and bad were equal, having twice as much good and bad. But no, say if your marriage has two good days for every bad day, that's, that's not enough to make it succeed. Some of the researchers did a shorthand version, which is how often do you have sex and how often do you have a fight? And if it's five to one or better, it's a, it's a good relationship. And it's the ratio that matters. So it works yes. for couples who almost never fight. And even though they only have sex a couple times a year, it's still five to one. It works for couples that you know, have a fight once a week and have sex every day. That, again, if it's five to one or better, the absolute amount of fighting is less, less of an issue than the ratio of, of the good to the bad. I think that's fascinating, Roy. And... You know, it's been great talking to you. I've learned so much. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Finally, Roy, for you, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> well, I wrote a book on that and I'm getting set to do another. So I can't give you a simple uh, or short answer like the bowl of cherries or something like that. One thing I concluded was there are many answers and only a few questions. So what you need to have something in your life that gives you a sense, a purpose, so that the present draws meaning from the future, that you're moving forward towards something, positive value, that you know what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, and you have some basis for thinking that you are doing what's good, 
Yes. Efficacy that you're able to make a difference in some way. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not enough just to have goals and purposes that are good, but if you can't do anything to reach them, <laughs> that's not going to satisfy you either. But feeling that I matter, that I make a difference, that I can have some positive impact, whether it's creating artwork or scientific progress or curing sick people or just helping my family do better, so that you can really make some difference and do some good. And the last thing is, is does this give you some sense of, of worth of being a, a yes. good person or better than others? People who have all of those seem to think life is pretty meaningful. People who can't satisfy those have some feel that you know, life lacks meaning in important ways. So, you know, for me personally, uh, I'm not a celebrity, but uh, I don't care about my, my personal life, but I've devoted my life in universities to advancing scientific knowledge by trying to tackle problems and understand them and contribute to knowledge in, in ways. And then to working with students and young people to, to help them do a little better. I gave up long ago on the idea that I was going to save the world and tell other people how to live. I don't have that much confidence in myself. But I said, well, I, I'm just going to do my good more locally and have the attitude that every person who's connected with me and every institution, university or whatever, I want them to be a little bit better off because of mm -hmm. that connection to me. And I say this as a hedonist. It's a very satisfying way to live. It's, it's not a, a moral thing if you, if you go and just say, all right, this person is here working with me and what can I do to make them a little better off? I can't make them into a genius, can't transform their lives, but, but I want when they leave to, to feel that they, they're better off from their connection with me. And that's been my approach and that, that, that seems to work for me. But as I said, there are many answers in a few questions. Well, I think on that note of many answers in few questions, that's a great time opportunity to finish our podcast. Roy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you keep asking the important questions and keep doing your great work in helping to inspire so many people, including myself across the world. Roy Bellmeister, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com. 